صباح الياسمين صباح الخير from Bethlehem This morning we have a fantastic guest Reem Assis from the US joining us but Reem's originally from Palestine and she's written this wonderful book and she's going to be telling us about the book and about all her new projects صباح الخير Reem صباح الفل فادي كيفك Alhamdulillah all is great how are you doing We're good we're good trying to get through this time I was joking with my husband this morning. Why do people want the lockdown to finish? All we do is we sit home, we watch TV, we bake. It almost sounds like it's fun, but it's not sustainable. So we're definitely ready for it to go back. Hopefully, hopefully everybody will go back to to their normal lives. Hopefully it'll it'll go by and and everybody will be safe and healthy. Reem, everybody's read the Palestinian table and the ones who haven't <laughs> should should be doing it. But you, your your arrival into the food world is, is quite interesting because you you come from a background that's not, uh, I mean, a food background, and then you, I think it's your family basically and having children and that that prompted you to to want to preserve a bit our culinary heritage. Absolutely think, yes. But let me take you first to your childhood. Mm-hmm. So your family is from the north of Palestine. You grew up in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. How was Jerusalem like when you were a kid? I mean, it's funny. I think I didn't have much of an opinion on what Jerusalem was like when I was growing up. It was only after I left and I started seeing it in relation to other places that I realized how special it was to grow up in a place like Jerusalem. Um, you mentioned earlier that my family is from the north. My father is actually from a village in the Galilee. My mother is from a village in the Triangle. So... Most of our weekends we actually spent in those places. Um and then I was always contrasting life there with life in Jerusalem and as you can imagine Jerusalem has a very spiritual aura to it. It's a special place that, you know, everywhere I have gone in the world there is nowhere that compares to it. But still it's a city and it felt a lot more advanced and cosmopolitan so to speak than it did in the villages where my extended family is from. So in a way I loved having both of those experiences and I think that's what helped shape the culinary uh, world that I write about in the Palestinian table. Yeah, you you, you combine two of, of many traditions in Palestine and one is the the, the village and, and different villages located in very different mm-hmm. settings in in Palestine and then and then Jerusalem which is a bit this hotspots of diversity. Right. What's your first memory of food in Jerusalem like something you've picked up on a in a little shop in the, in the old city mm. or like what does what is that taste that you you kept with you all your life <laughs> so this one's actually a very easy one because ever since i can remember um on weekends my mother and i would always go together to the old city and we would walk down the stairs in damascus gate there was uh a bakery that made kakib simsim kakil it's, it's known as Jerusalem bagel abroad i guess and we would buy that from the bakery we we mean, let me let me stop you there yeah. let me stop you there um, no 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 it's not the Jerusalem that's something i i've been fighting even if people have wanted to call it the Jerusalem bagel it's not a bagel it's kakil and i love kakil but actually fadi let me actually remember this point let me get back to it later i've been doing research on who the bagel is actually an arab invention Um, yeah, but, but let's get back to let's that get back to it. It's, yeah, no, it's fascinating because people talk so much. You know, they say, "Oh, the bagel is Jewish." Oh, this, oh that. 
My second book is entirely about the history of food in the Middle East. I've been researching things from the 4th century, the 8th century, the 10th century. The first mention of a dough that is boiled in water with uh, caustic soda and then um, uh, and then baked is actually in an Arab 10th century cookbook. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, it, let's get back to that. <laughs> You were asking about my favorite memory, and it is kakil oats. We would get it from a very special, a specific shop on the stairs. We would walk a few more steps, and then there was a falafel shop that we would get it from. And then we would go into this hole-in-the-wall hummus place. It was called hummus lina, and it was so simple. They would literally just serve you hummus food, whatever you ordered, and we would take out the falafel that we bought from a different shop, the kak we bought from a different shop, and we would have breakfast. Wow. So... Back then, I thought it was, oh, this is so boring. What I really wanted to do was walk around and look at the shops. But in hindsight, I'm like, that was the best part of the experience with my mother. Those are the first tastes I associate with my childhood, with going back home to Jerusalem. You, you, when you come back, do you still do that ritual? Every single time, without fail. And now I take my daughters too. So, <laughs> yeah, that, That's what, what's really great with, with the old city of Jerusalem is for, for people who grew up there or grew up around. I, I went to school in Jerusalem. Uh, mm-hmm. We all have this like ritual. And, and whenever we, we are allowed back in or we manage to, to come back if we're living abroad, we just all do the, like one ritual. And, and some places have survived for... for Years, some others sadly have disappeared. I, I have a memory as a yeah. kid of a place that used to do zagalil, roasted pigeons. Oh my god, pigeons, Ab- yes. Ab- Abu Kosti, which is no more there. But yeah, Jerusalem is, is a fantastic place. So you, you shaped your culinary experiences with these different terroirs in, in, in Palestine. And, mm-hmm. and then you went off and, and did your studies, worked in the mm-hmm. business and finance world. And then what? founded a family is that the moment you you said well i need to write this all down for my daughters look i think in hindsight everything looks very neat you know oh i started a family i wanted to do this book to preserve it and that is the story that i always tell and it's absolutely true but going through the thing i think it was a lot of different factors that came together at the same time On the one hand, I was living in London. I was seeing all these restaurants, uh, in many cases marketed as Israeli. And I would go in and I would taste the food and I would think to myself, oh my God, this is what my mother cooks at home, but she makes it better. So initially, I I wasn't even well-versed in the world of food politics either. And I just thought, well, people should know that there's a much better way to make this food. And that's when I started the idea kind of in my head of, hey, maybe someone should write about Palestinian food. At the time when this was happening, there was no... Palestinian books out there except the Gaza Kitchen, which was very specific to Gaza. Um, And then when my first daughter was born and I took some time off from work, that's when it really, you know, sunk in that I wanted to do it because on the one hand, I panicked. I thought I'm raising her away from all these experiences like the one you and I just discussed. And I wanted her to at least have a sense of home and a connection to this land that had meant so much to me growing up. And I felt food was a way to give her that connection, to tell her that story, but also to preserve it. Because even day to day, I see how we're losing so many of our traditions, not just to other cultures, but to life itself, to the fast-paced world that we live in. And I wanted at least some part of it to be preserved for a very long time to come. You know, it's very important, I think, to this this dynamic you had, which is, you know, you're touching on two things. One is culinary appropriation by 
mm-hmm. Israeli um, uh, authors, uh, chefs, mm-hmm. and and the whole the whole thing, but also the right. the transmission, the side of transmission, whether it's for your daughters, and and you know, with Palestinians, we had a challenge I think for years where we had lost pride in our kitchen. In like mm-hmm. in a lot of places in the Arab world, where chefs and culinary schools would teach very different cuisines and not very much right. the local cuisine, and, and and that's really interesting to to see how things have changed since then. Because Ali Klebo started writing in this week in Palestine, Christy Nasser started with her Palestinian cooking book, and and then things have have gone global. And today, I think pa- Palestine and Palestinian food have become quite an item people are aware 100%. people are, are really understanding things but how is it being in the u.s and, and actually writing about palestinian food because i think challenges are different in the uk how is it in the u.s because i think in the u.s the dynamics are different so it's funny you mention that because i have the experience in both places um i signed my book deal while living in london i wrote the majority of the book while i was there and then we moved here halfway through and now my second book i'm writing it here um i think The interesting thing about the U.S. is it's hard to generalize because it is such a big place and there are so many different pockets of people across the country. Um, In specific food circles where people are educated and they know the history, they know that, you know, this is at the very least Middle Eastern, if not Palestinian food. And we can get into that, the whole issue with Palestinian versus Lebanese versus Syrian. Um, But then you also just have a huge lack of awareness because the marketing for Israeli cuisine in the U.S. is so massive. In London, I think it's a little bit less, the marketing machine, than you see it in the U.S., and people tend to probably be uh, at least a bit, it's a more cosmopolitan place, and so people tend to know more about other cultures, and as a result, they're more aware of these nuances. In the U.S., it's less so. So it's probably a little bit steeper of a learning curve in the U.S. than in Europe and the U.K., then do you feel things have changed over the last 10 years? Uh, in what sense, you mean, in terms of Israeli versus Palestinian food or across the board? Across the board of people sure. re- realizing that Palestinians have a cuisine that's specific to the Palestinians. and the... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen the change. I've seen the change in both places. Um, I don't think it's a very simple story. I think it's a couple of things that are at play. Um For starters, it's almost like a supply-demand issue. You know, initially, I think with Claudia Rodin, the food of the Middle East was introduced to the West. And, you know, back then, 30, 40 years ago, you couldn't even find chickpeas and eggplants in supermarkets. Now you can find tahine, zaatar, all these things very easily. But when you're first being exposed to a cuisine, you don't realize how many niche parts of that cuisine there are. And once you get to know Middle Eastern food, you realize, oh, wait, there are different kinds of Middle Eastern food. And I guess that openness, that interest in the cuisine of the Middle East made it easier for uh, Palestinian food to rise and have its moment. The other thing I think is coming from the Palestinian side itself. You mentioned this before. You said we were cooking other cuisines. You know, we were cooking hot French cuisine instead of focusing on the dishes our grandmothers made, but also, I think, um, many Palestinians looked at the food, the kitchen and food as something not very important. And because of our conflict and our circumstances, anything done that did not address those issues directly was seen almost as detracting from them. But I think once we started to see that our culture was simply another plane on which we could reclaim our history, 
and our cuisine, then more and more people became interested in focusing on this thing. And obviously the rise of social media and the internet and whatnot has made it a lot more accessible and easy to disseminate that information. Of course. I mean, the, the cuisine is an essential part of our identity and, and it's really um, mm-hmm. a, one of the best ways to preserve not only our our identity from, from being stolen and distorted, but also on the ground to preserve the resilience of farmers, of mm-hmm. producers and artisans who are you know, fighting for the safekeep of their lands with Israeli settlements and, and bypass roads taking of over. Of course. Um, and, yeah. No, I was going to say, I mean, for many countries, food is one of the ways that you galvanize nationalism, that you build a sense of collective identity for people, and you see it all over the world. Um, you know, historically, cuisine was regional, less so national. The nation state didn't come about till the late 18th, early 19th century, but you see this everywhere in Thailand. You know, pad thai is not made from native ingredients. It's made from imported ingredients, but it was a way for the prime minister in the 30s to galvanize nationalism. And I think effectively that's what Israel did as well. They needed to build some kind of identity and food was the easiest way for them to do it. Unfortunately, they failed to mention that where the majority of that food was learned from was the Palestinians. Well, that's the problem is, you know, I I keep saying I don't have a problem having this really chef cooking Palestinian food, but he or she has to say it's Palestinian. And it's something within the the cooking world, which which is really a base, is the origin Mm -hmm. of products. And when when you use a truffle, you say where it comes from, if it's from Alba or from uh, Perigord. If you're using a salt, you say where it comes from. And then as soon as it comes to, you know, I have all these like very ethical chefs uh, with everything else, except at the origin of products when they're Palestinian. And we're seeing things like Leban Jamid being called Israeli Parmesan. We're seeing, oh, dear God, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> horrible things like that um, happening. How's your, I mean, when you launched the book, mm-hmm. how difficult was it to promote that book? So I've been asked that very many times. Surprisingly, it wasn't difficult for me. Um, I don't know if it was, it's a combination of factors, I think. You know, for starters, I had a very good publisher supporting the book, doing the promotion, helping out with it. Um, On the other hand, uh, you know, it's, I think some of the books that might have come out before took a very strong political stance. So within the books, the political situation is addressed, rightly so. And in my book, this wasn't a planned thing, but in hindsight, looking through it, the word word Israel is not mentioned once. So the book was very apolitical, and in a way, it allowed our food and our history to tell that story for itself. You know, I didn't need to come and say this food is not Israeli, it's Palestinian. I simply told the story of food over multiple generations in the land. And that is a lot more powerful than trying to force someone to believe you by telling them something rather than just showing them in a very, what appears to be a disarming way, the history of the region. And I think that's one of the reasons it was easy for people to accept it and look through it. But I think as a result, it's also changed a lot of people's views and opinions on either side. I chose to focus on the food and allow that to tell the political story, if that makes sense. Mm, definitely. Um, but w- what's interesting with, with your life is that you, I mean, you grew up in Jerusalem, you're from two places in historic Palestine. Mm-hmm. Have you seen um, like a change of food habits in in historic Palestine and then in, in the uh, 
in the West Bank and Jerusalem. Like, do you see a difference between the different Palestinian communities of of how food is and relation to food are changing? Yes. Um, so one thing I've always said about food, even within Palestine, uh, food is regional. Fadi. So if you look at the north of Palestine, you look at the south, you look at the West Bank, the foods they eat still vary somewhat. Part of it is just the availability of ingredients in the specific landscape. Uh, other parts of it are the climate, religion, who you, what other countries you border, etc. So that has always, you've had these marked differences also between city and village. You know, in the cities, people eat a lot more rice, whereas in the villages, they eat more wheat and burgol. Now, in terms of change, that has changed over time as ingredients become more accessible, people's uh, socioeconomic status rises, etc. Now, um, in terms of more recent change, you do see people, there's a shift away from some of our very old traditional rustic dishes where people are just making easier things and simpler things. You know, how many women do you know today in their 20s and 30s who are sitting at home wrapping grape leaves and stuffing squash? Probably a lot less than they were just 10 or 15 years ago, in part because of the way the world has changed. Um, so you see that, but there's a counter of it, which is abroad, that you see this return to the traditional dishes, which are A, healthier, um, and B, they're just incredibly tasty. Um, other than that, I think in the villages in Palestine, you still see a bit more of holding on to tradition. So my husband is from a village in the West Bank called Taibe, where they make the beer. And when we got engaged and when we got married, you know, of course they had to make mansaf because what else shows respect more than mansaf, you know? And you go to the city and people are less likely to do that. They think, you know, oh, let's do some more foreign food and more uh, modern things because that shows that we're more uh, whatever you want, you know, sophisticated, cosmopolitan, etc. So it's fascinating to see the differences across the different parts of Palestine as well. You know, not just because the rate of change is different between the villages and the cities. No, but Mansaf is sacred wherever, wherever you go. And, and that's something I'll, I'll defend <laughs> uh, regardless of, of the, the village in the uh, town. No, well, no, but, but you're right. If, if people you in Jerusalem the don't, north, don't they use... They don't have Mansaf. Yeah, yeah. People in Jerusalem don't use Laban Jamid. And, and it, it's really interesting, that this diversity of, of our very small territory at the end, because it's, mm-hmm. it's a tiny country. Um but but it's extremely diverse and it ref- it reflects the terroir we're in and and really the, the different environments we come from, but also the different influences of of cultures of peoples that that uh, across the, the centuries occupied us and and left their influences. Um, there's actually it's funny you say that. There's one of my favorite quotes which I'm hoping to put in this new book is by Mahmoud Darwish and he literally says he says. I am a product of all the civilizations that have passed through the country, Greek, Roman, Persian, Jewish, Ottoman. Each powerful civilization passed through and left something behind. I am the son of all these fathers, but I belong to one mother. My mother is the land that absorbed them all and was both witness and victim. Exactly. So it's... <laughs> exactly. It's a heavy one, but... It's Mahmoud at his best. <laughs> um... Exactly. <laughs> You know, it, it, it's really impressive. Mahmoud, in his poetry, um, very much talks about food. Um, mm-hmm. Frika is one of the ones, and wheat, where he talked about it a lot. So you're, you're talking about your second book. Mm-hmm. What's the second book, and when is it coming out? We're waiting for it. 
<laughs> so the second book is supposed to come out spring 2021. I was supposed to be home doing the photo shoot now. And that has, of course, been postponed. If I manage to get it done by June, the book will still be out spring 2021, if not the following season. Um, so hopefully soon. <laughs> Fantastic. We're all waiting for it. Um, Reem, uh, what's your favorite Palestinian product? One. You get to choose one only. So we were just talking about it. Now, I think Jamid is probably one of my favorite. And also, I find it quite versatile, even though it's traditionally used for mansaf. I find there are many other uses for it that are just absolutely wonderful. Um, I make dips with it sometimes. So I'll soak it in water and grind it with uh, fresh tomatoes and garlic. And it's absolutely delicious. Uh, sometimes I will grate it over a salad. So let's say you're making fatouche. Instead of putting halloumi cheese over it, I will grate some um, jamid on top. And it gives it this, for lack of a better word, umami flavor. Because it is, it's sour, it's salty, it's, you know, it's fermented. It's very, very strong in flavor. So probably that is one of my favorite things to cook with. Mm. I, I, but it's hard to make a choice you know right now in the back of my mind I'm thinking well what about Frike what about Maftoul what about Zatar I love all of them but I'll stick with Jamid <laughs> but Jamid happens to be the one I, I use practically the, the most in my kitchen I I get it from the Jubjub which is the, the creamy version up to the dry okay. and, and we I decline all of them in very different mm. ways because it, it's really a fantastic product and for me it's like one of these pro- produce that holds a whole sense of identity in it, like every mouthful right. of it is saying Palestine. It, it's of course. It's so much ingrained in our um, culture and our, and our palate. Um, but yeah, Frika, Zatar, Shema, um, you know, there, there, there's a, there's many of these fantastic Palestinian products. So, what's your favorite Palestinian dish? If it's not I mean, you're going to say mansaf because it's Lebanon Jamid, but... No, 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 actually, it's not mansaf. No, I mean, I love mansaf, but I wouldn't call it my favorite Palestinian dish. Uh, So, look, it's... I'm going to tell you, it's a toss-up between two. Whenever I get asked that question, I always say it's stuffed chicken. And the real reason that's my favorite dish is it's a very emotional one for me. You know, it's the one that my grandmother used to make for me on Fridays and Mm. was always my favorite one growing up. So whenever I would come back from university, it's the first dish that she would make for me. To this day, I've been living outside of the country more than I have inside it. And it's what my mother cooks for me when I go home. And I actually don't like to make it at home by myself because I feel it's a dish that I want to eat with my family. Mm-hmm. But in terms of my favorite dish that I do make on a regular basis is kusa wara ubitinjan, just the stuffed zucchini, eggplants and grape leaves which uh, my youngest daughter claims is her favorite as well, and my oldest refuses to touch. So oh. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so on the days you do Kusawara and, and Betinjan, you, you have to cook something else for your eldest. Yeah, or I try to, like, I put meat at the bottom, and then she'll have the meat by itself. She's very much, I want everything separate, so uh-huh. I manage, but yeah. <laughs> no, not not I, easy to satisfy everybody at one go. Never, ever. <laughs> I now feel for my mother and what I did with her when I was younger. But I think once they leave home, they start to appreciate all the food that they had access to. That, that, that's another interesting thing where people have have been going back to, to Palestinian food. And, and maybe now right. with this whole lockdown happening, it, it's really gotten people to, to be even more interested of, oh, but... But how did we do this? And how did we do Malfouf? Right. And 
and then, you know, do you have a recipe for Merfouf? Can you send it? And and it's funny, I'm, I'm getting all these people that I never imagined would be people who cook around me and, and they're sending me messages and saying, well, chef, how do we do this? And then, you know, we, we tasted this one. They once, have uh, the time now, which is good. Exactly, exactly. They have the time and they're looking for comfort, real food. And it's like this authentic food that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's quite bizarre to see, to see today the, this whole awareness of well, let's eat healthy happening because people are scared. And actually, our great-grandmothers were eating healthy. And, and we, we... I think our older generations had a very symbiotic relationship with the land, which is also why the land feels very valuable to them. I mean, it was their source of life and it, their source of sustenance as well. Uh, and they basically ate what the land provided. And I think that is the best way to live. You know, people think, oh, let me do a dairy-free diet or, oh, let me do a grain-free diet. I, I don't believe in those things because when the land gives you something and you are living, like you were saying, that terroir, that landscape that you're in, it's native flora and fauna, those are things that are probably very healthy for your body and your genetic makeup. The problem now is these a lot of these things are mass-produced and they, you know, go all over the world from different places and it's hard to figure out now what is natural and what is not. And yeah. I think that's where people are just kind of, you know, losing it a but, little bit in terms of eating healthy. Yeah, but our, our older generations would lived really the season, and that's something we still live in a bit in, in Palestine, which is... is seasonality. Yeah. Seasonality, local produce. I mean, exactly. I start my day every morning by going to see this fantastic lady called, called Um Nabil on the Bethlehem market. Mm. And her produce will define the menu of my restaurant that night. Um, That's and it, amazing. And it really changes every morning, practically. Um, the, the produce, I mean, there are things like akub and loof. And, oh, yes. Oh, my God, um, yes. You know, these mu'ra, I mean, all these herbs and khubbeza. All of it, al-sahine. I just made khubbeza the other day, yeah. Uh, that, that are foraged, that are very short seasons and and you just change the whole way you're eating every time. I mean, if you want to laugh, the other day, my parents, you're not supposed to leave unless it's essential. So they put on their masks and they went out into the mountains to collect zakat. And <laughs> halfway there, they hear a policeman calling, saying, Philippe, I don't even know how he knew my father's name. I think he looked it up through the license plate. He's like, what are you doing? And he, the policeman goes, you're only supposed to leave for essentials. And my mother looks at him and goes, it's Zatat, it's essential. And, you know, he laughed. He's like, you know what? Just fine. Take it and go home. Let's go. But hurry up. You're not supposed to be outside. But to them, they still go in season and forage. All this stuff. Anything. All these things. And it's, you know, now I drive sometimes an hour and a half to a supermarket that sells Arabic groceries so I can get these things in season. Wow, and you get you get them in season, right? You can manage to get most of them in season. Yeah, not everything. You know, obviously, if it's plant here, it's planted. It's not foraged, I imagine. Um, and you find, yeah, you find grape leaves. Sometimes you find chobeze. Sometimes I found green almonds the other day. I pickled mm. them because mm. they weren't going to last that long anyway. So I, you know, I make do with what I can. I try to preserve as much through for use throughout the year, but. It's not as easily accessible here as it is for you. Definitely not. Yeah, definitely. But but it's still it's fantastic that you can still get access to to a lot of yeah. little, little tastes of home and Of course. 
<laughs> so let, let's finish on a on a sweet note. What's your mm -hmm. favorite Palestinian dessert? Oh, um, I actually right now was frying awana before you called, but yeah. uh, <laughs> I think my favorite one I'd have to say is knafe. Which, which uh, one and I think that knafes? one we can agree is Palestinian. You know, with things like awame, atayif, aisha, saray, etc. You, you can debate what is it. But I think knafe in Abyssinia is absolutely, you know, from Palestine. And I love it for one very simple reason. It's, it's a dessert of contrast. It's salty and sweet. And it's crunchy and soft. And those things, I think, just make your brain go haywire and keep wanting to come back for more and more and more. Yeah. And I love making it at home. You so. know, it's funny you say knafe because in Bethlehem, we oh. did not know the Nabulsi knafe until quite recently. And we, really? have, we have a different knafe in Bethlehem, which is which basically the, the, the vermicelli. And it's cooked. Yes. And then we put on, on top some syrup and cinnamon and walnuts. And that's the Bethlehem oh. knafe, which for, for, I mean, today, very few people still do it. We, we, I still do it in, in, in some of these. Deb, I want to try yours when I come back home. <laughs> It'll be a pleasure. Uh, Reem, thank you for, for your time and being with us this morning. Um, thank you, Fanny. It was a real pleasure. We're all waiting impatiently for your next book. and for you, Thank you so much. And for you to come back to Palestine. Thank you, Fadi. Soon, inshallah. Soon. Shukran, Reem. Have a great day. Thank you. You too, Fadi. Shukran.